0: Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and may not be suitable for younger audiences. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Live in the Studio, where once a month we indulge in all things TV, past and present. My name's Anna and tonight with our panel of experts here we are devouring the dark, lusty, mysterious world of the great undead and all of the stakes, crosses, blood and fang-banging folk who love them. I'd like to introduce to you our chair for the evening on the end here. Dr. Sage Walton teaches in the Screen Studies Program at the University of Melbourne and is an assistant curator with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Recently, Sage collaborated on ACME's new permanent exhibition, Screen Worlds, the story of film, television, and digital culture. Her work on genre, aesthetics, embodiment, and film and TV history appears in The Contemporary Comic Book Superhero, Playing with Memory, the films of Guy Madden, Lounge Critic, The Cat Theorist's Companion, Senses of Cinema, Screening the Past, Artlink, and Metro. What we can also tell you about Dr Walton that is not in her official bio is that she is known as the pimp of the undead. This event is being recorded so that you can watch it again and again on the ACME website from next Thursday. So, after the panel, we'll be having a Q&A, so you can ask all of your gory questions to our experts here. So, that is also being recorded. So, we just ask that um, I will have a microphone, that you wave your hand wildly, and uh, Rachel, who is just outside the door, she'll have a microphone as well, so we can make sure that everything is recorded. So, now, live in the studio, vampires buffed and fanged. Sage.
1: Thank you, Anna. Um, I'll just give you a general outline of what's going to happen and how the panel is going to take place. So I'm going to do um, just a basic introduction, and then each of our panelists will speak for about 15 minutes. We've got clips and kind of PowerPoints and things to um, to show you to accompany each of our talks. Um, so if you have any burning questions, just hold off until the end for the Q&A component because this is a sold-out question, um, a sold-out Um, All right, so the main impetus um, for me putting together this panel was to ask whether or not it's possible to even speak about something like the vampire. What I mean by that is that perhaps there's no such thing as the vampire and that we can only ever talk about vampires in the plural. As you'll be hearing tonight, and I'm sure many of you know, there are countless on-screen versions of the vampire and even of Dracula. Um, Now we've got vamps who want to go mainstream rather than um, living on the margins. And going mainstream, particularly in something like true blood, means having lots of hot sex with humans. Um, So we've got vamps who feed on human blood. We've got vegetarian and vegan vamps who exist on animal blood or synthetic blood. We've got vamps who burst into flames in the sun. And now we've got vamps who sparkle in it. (laughs) Oh, it's already begun. Um, (laughs) So, if there's anything that defines vampires and vampirisms, um, perhaps it's the fact that they seem to embody um, mobility and movement. Um, vamps are like time travellers. They've got immortality on their side. And as Graham um, Stoker once wrote, they can spread their revenge across centuries. Vamps are also global travellers and citizens of the world. And because they're usually wealthy, um, Vamps travel the world and exist across geographic and national boundaries. Their coffin can be wherever they want it to be, 19th century England, the South during the American Civil War, a fictional town in Louisiana, 2009. So when you've got a figure who's been worked over for centuries and a figure who exists across media, in folk tales, in poetry, in novels, in film, in TV, in comics and computer games, who are the real vampires? Are there somehow more authentic or correct versions of the vamp than others? And who gets to decide? So these are some of the questions that we'll all be discussing tonight with you. Now Nina Oberak in her book Our Vampires Ourselves argues that vamps are transhistoric figures, that each age or generation fashions its own image and comes up with its own definition of the vampire. So whereas ghosts or other kind of supernatural monsters rarely change, vampires tend to blend into the um, cultures that they inhabit. And as she writes, our vampires and our Draculas tell us not only who we were, but who we are now. So bearing that in mind, it's time for our clip.
2: I'll get the screen up. Oh, here go. we go. Did I just
1: hit? You should just hit play. <laughs> Gender, Thank
3: you. <enough. Sorry.
0: laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: Sorry
5: When Ginger is finished, Glamour for me Are
0: you sure? she Glamour one too many times already Who knows how much of her left?
5: It's either that or Turner You want
0: her? Please, I'm not that desperate Glamour
3: it is Excellent
0: Come, I'll buy your blood
5: stomach that stuff don't you find it metallic and vile I huh? don't think about it it's sustenance that's all <laughs> what well, if you're the poster boy the mainstreaming movement is in very deep trouble true blood it keeps you alive but it will bore you to death <laughs> let's cut to the chase shall we you kill a vampire bill for a human what are we going to do about this what do you have in mind
0: I'll take the girl.
5: No. You can have anyone you want. Why do you want her? Why do you want her? You're not in love with her, are you? Suki must be protected. Now, that sounds like an edict, but it couldn't be because I would know about that. Admit it. you love her. If I hadn't done what I did... Would you have let his disloyalty stand? Whatever I did to Long Shadow, I would not have done in front of witnesses. Especially not vampire witnesses. Not smart, Bill. I'll tell you when to turn off the secret. Not smart at all.
6: Put these on.
1: Oh! Thank you, but I- I'm fine, really. I'm just going to dry out my hair
0: and be on my way. You're not going anywhere. Eric and your boyfriend are not nearly done talking just yet. Is Bill in some kind of trouble? That's for the boys to figure out right now. What you need to do is change out of your clothes. This vampire in your cleavage.
3: <laughs> okay, you.
5: Allow me.
0: Thank you. I'm beginning to understand the fuss everyone's making over you. Oh, hi there, Pam. Oh, who's your new friend? Ginger, soaky, soaky, ginger.
1: I love Pam, she's one of my favourite characters. Okay, we'll just wait for the lights to come back up. Okay, so for those of you who aren't already um, true uh, blood converts, um, True Blood happens to be the most popular TV series that HBO has ever produced, um, on top of you know, outstripping kind of in numbers, things like The Wire, Sopranos, um, and Sex and the City. Um, so while True Blood is based on the um, books, the Southern Vampire series by Charlene Harris, arguably there is no original text author vampire source at work here. Rather, it's the, um, the series kind of reinvention of the vampire myth the look and image of the vamp, that becomes the originality. And there's no subtext to True Blood. Everything is out there on the surface. It's racism, metaphors, it's homophobia, um, and vampire rights collide. Um, Admittedly, I am totally glamoured by this show. Um, I'm in love with its intense physicality, the way in which vampires explode rather than turning into dust, Um, and its sheer excesses of blood gore. And last but not least, True Blood's stock in trade is sex. Um, in True Blood, it's not so much that we are what we eat, we are who we sleep with. Um, and if vamps are the hottest thing in pop culture right now, True Blood, I think, boasts some of the physically hottest vamps ever, such as Eric <laughs> and Pam. Um, so clearly, I'm a fan, and I'm trying to convert you. But at the end of the day, aren't uh, fans like vampires as well. Um, Like vampires, we uh, voraciously consume our vampire of choice and try to convert each other into texts, into our favourite kind of text. So some people that I've been trying to convert into True Blood (laughs) haven't (laughs) taken to it. (laughs) So with that in mind, um, up next is (laughs) Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. She is a PhD candidate in the Cinema Studies program at La Trobe University. Um, (laughs) And she is currently completing her thesis... On microhistory and paracinematic horror, um, her other research areas include sexual violence, ethics, and aesthetics. Um, Alex publishes regularly in both academic and non-academic film publications, and she is also writing a book on the
7: rape revenge film in horror. Alex, thank you, Lady Sage, Dr. Sage. Um, I'll be focusing um, primarily on, on the horror, uh, the, the kind of the history of the vampire. This evening, Um, but before we start, considering that this is an 18 plus session and that my topic perhaps is the least sexy um, of the four... I thought that I'd just start with a shot from Sex a Single Vampire, because I don't think it's really worth leaving the house and paying money to hear people speak if you don't get to see John Holmes naked. Maybe that's just me. All right. Um, I am going to need to get you guys to use your imaginations a little just to keep things kind of spicy and saucy and foxy for you. Um, I'm pretty crap at Photoshop, but I have tried my best, so please bear with me here. I know you're all capable of great sexual imagination. <laughs> So just by being here, I'm assuming that you're all very familiar with Bram Stoker, who Sage has already mentioned. Bram Stoker, of course, is the 19th century Irish novelist whose 1897 novel Dracula is pretty much considered the kind of central text to the contemporary kind of idea of the vampire. I'm also assuming that you've got a familiarity with Elizabeth Bathory, um, the 16th century Hungarian countess who is still regarded as one of the most prolific female serial killers of all time. She had anywhere up to 650 victims, most of whom were young women. Good work, Elizabeth Bathory. (laughs) This, of course, is uh, Sheridan Le Fanu, who I'm guessing you guys know. Now, he's another 19th century Irish writer. He's uh, very famous for his uh, novella called Carmilla. Now, Carmilla um, beat his fellow countryman, Bram Stoker, to the punch by about 25 years. He published his short short novel in uh, 1872. And finally, I'm figuring that we all know who this guy is. This, of course, is Vlad Tepes, who you will probably know as Vlad the Impaler. Um, He's the notorious 15th century Transylvanian prince and homicidal fruitcake, um, also the son of Vlad Dracul. Right. So one of the problems that film historians face when looking at the very early days um, of cinema um, is that simply not everything has survived. this is the case with two of the earliest known vampire films, the British film The Secret of House Number no. 5 from 1912 and the Danish film Isle of the Dead from 1913. What has remained, however, is this, the French ten-part series uh, Les Vampires from 1915, um, which may ring a bell for some of you if you've seen the 1996 film Irma Vep, the French vampire film Irma Vep, which talks quite explicitly about this particular series. So, in 1920, there was also a Russian version of Stoker's book, which is pretty much considered the first actual filmic adaptation of Dracula. Um, but, of course, the most mem- memorable kind of vampire film, I guess, from this particular era is, uh, is this film. It's Nosferatu by F.W. Murnau. Now, Stoker's wi- widow, Florence, is sadly remembered um, for undertaking a pretty militant stance against this and all other adaptations of Dracula. Um, and she went out of her way to pretty much make sure that, that every copy of this film that she could find was destroyed. Um, thankfully, she wasn't that successful, and we know that a copy turned up at Universal Studios in America. So now we start to get the vampires that are starting to look like what we kind of know them as today, perhaps. Um, this image of Bela Lugosi in his kind of you know, formal attire and his spooky jazz hands... So, the guy who directed this was called Todd Browning, um, and Todd Browning had actually made an earlier vampire film called London After Midnight that was a silent film with um, a very famous actor called Lon Chaney. Now, this, again, does not survive, um, but it's Lugosi's Dracula, really, that uh, is... is, I think even today, a lot of us, when we think of traditional vampires, we think of Bela Lugosi. We really had that kind of image as a kind of cultural imprint So along with the rest of the famous horror films that Universal did in the 1930s, they were really keen to kind of cash in on the Dracula franchise as long as they could. So Browning's Dracula was followed with films like Dracula's Daughter in 1936 and Son of Dracula in 1943. Now the former of these stars an actress called Gloria Holden, that's her there in the middle, all, all green, um, She'll be really, this film will be really familiar to those of you who have been, any kind of interest in representations of homosexuality in Hollywood cinema. Um, the film's tagline was, she gives you, the, she gives you that weird feeling. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, she certainly does. <laughs> so it's pretty obvious what this film is trying to get at. It's certainly not a kind of complex metaphor that it's kind of wrestling with here. Um, it follows the title character's... Uh, struggles to really repress her vampiric desires so that she can live a normal life in society and be accepted. Now, on one hand, this idea of being gay and being a monster might sound pretty uncool to us um, and think, well, that's, not, that's a bit regressive and a bit not awesome. Um, but one of the things that this film does, and maybe it's despite itself even now, is that it actually... It, it really presents her in a really fair way. I think that you really feel for her... And I've got to say, maybe it's just me, but I, I'm, I'm, I think she's much, much, much more interesting and awesome, and I care for her more as a character than I do for the supposed good guys who are really boring heterosexuals. Um, what Dracula's Daughter does, um, it does what a lot of modern vampire stuff does, and it's uh, True Blood in particular. It just reminds us on a really basic level that vampires are about hot, subversive penetration. Um, <laughs> it, it, that's, that's what it's about. All right. So at this point, I'd like to mention a guy called Tim Kane. Um, now he's written a lot about vampires in film and television, but he's got pretty crap tits. So I thought I'd put <laughs> up here instead. I don't want you guys going away thinking that that's Tim Kane. Um, no offence to Tim Kane if he's in the room. Um, now Kane sets up three really distinct cycles of the vampire film. He talks about the malignant cycle, which is dominated by films where vampires are the bad guys and we don't want them to win. Full stop full stop. Um, He then talks about the erotic cycle, um, which again, I guess, is pretty self-explanatory. And he identifies the period that we're in now as the sympathetic sympathetic cycle, where we actually like the vampires um, a lot, and that we can have things like good vampires and bad vampires kind of functioning in a universe with good humans and bad humans. Um, so the kind of moral monsters versus human stuff has kind of been broken down a fair bit. We see this a lot, um, the Cullens, we see it with um, Angel and Spike, it's in Buffy, it's in Troop, like we see this, it's, it's pretty kind of the norm now, I guess. Um, now, while this is a really useful way, kind of setups ups like this is kind of a, a useful way perhaps to start thinking about um, vampire history, um, one of the things it does, I guess, just by even attempting to kind of map it out this neatly is that it cuts a whole bunch of stuff out. Um, And that, to me, makes me wonder why we need to do it in the first place. Um, Isn't it perhaps more useful to think about the things that don't fit into these categories just as much as it is to the things that do fit into these categories? Now, this is something that Martin will talk a lot more about after um, I shut up. Um, But I certainly think that it's the films that break out of these kind of patterns that not only take um, vampires in a kind of interesting new direction, but are actually more fun. So fun is something that um, is actually a big part of what I want to talk to you guys about tonight, looking back at vampire, uh, vampire history on screen. Um, in my little historical overview, I guess I want to break out of the kind of dominant American kind of stuff, because I'm figuring that most of you are pretty familiar with that anyway, and I want to have a look at a kind of more broader notion of, of vampires on screen. Um, So, when I think of the prehistory of the kind of softcore porno vampires that we see in True Blood, for example, first thing I think of is the Hammer films from the 60s and 70s 70s from Britain. Um, These, of course, brought us people like um, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. We had films like Horror of Dracula, Brides of Dracula, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, Vampire Circus, um, (laughs) Twins of Evil, and, of course, The Vampire Lovers from nineteen seventy. Um, I also want to mention French vampires. eh? It's getting spicy. Double sexy. Double sexy. (laughs) 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 Snap. Um, The French vampires, Jean Rolland, I'm not sure um, if many of you guys are familiar with Jean Rolland's film, Um, but they're actually surprisingly erotically charged for films that are so kind of marked by their era of production Um, Films like Rape Rape of the Vampire from 1968, Requiem for a Vampire, 1971, Fascination in 1979, and The Living Dead Girl in 1982, all really recommended if you like your kind of smutty vampire stuff. If you haven't seen them, you're totally in for a treat. So our little trip around the world with vampires, we just can't leave out my personal favourites, which of course are the Italian vampires, now, as you can see here in this uh, promo shot from Jess Franco's classic Vampiros Lesbos from 1971, anyone with a problem with sparkling vampires, no offence, Sage, you've got to pretty much go back in a time machine and sort things out with Soledad Miranda here and her sequined softcore porno poncho. Um, not a sentence I would ever think that I would have said in my life. There you go. By the time this film came out, though, in 1971, there, were already, uh, there was a kind of steady stream of um, Italian vampire films. Now, probably the most famous of these is Black Sunday by Mario Bava, starring the uh, legendary hornbag Barbara Steele. <laughs> but Bava, um, he made some cracking films in the kind of uh, vampire ballpark, I guess. And already, like, he was playing with like, notions of kind of stretching the genre and kind of breaking rules, particularly with his uh, 1965 science fiction vampire film, Planet of the Vampires. So Mexico, also another country that produced a lot of vampire movies (laughs) that might make us think differently about the history of vampires in film. El Vampiro in 1958 is considered the first feature-length vampire film from that country. Um, And of course I can't really do this without mentioning one of the most famous uh, figures in Mexican cult film uh, from this particular era, which is um, Santo the Wrestler. Now, Santo the Wrestler had a couple of run-ins with the undead. Firstly, in uh, Santo versus the Vampire Woman in 1962, and in 1970, with uh, the imaginatively titled Santo and the Revenge of the Vampire Women. Um, I think it's an important point to stop here and just clarify. You guys have paid good money to be here tonight, yeah? And, and like, we're going to have lots of boobs and lots of sex. It's going to be fantastic. But I do want you to feel like you learnt something. So I want you to take notes. There may be a test. Vampires... Mexico, wrestlers, 60s. You got it? (laughs) Good, we can keep moving now. It is a wild, wild, weird world of vampires if you look outside. It's pretty crazy stuff there. Uh, Turkish vampire movies, Dracula in Istanbul from 1953, really important film. A lot of the iconography that we assume is Western actually comes from this particular film, which surprises us, I think, today. Um, 1966, uh, Filipino vampire film, Blood of the Vampires. We've got the poster for that in the middle. There's also, of course, the wonderful Hopping Vampires from Hong Kong. Um, (laughs) Australia wasn't left out. Yeah, go team. Go team. (laughs) Um, This is probably, honestly, it's probably my favourite vampire film. It's called Thirst. It's by Rod Hardy from 1979. Rod Hardy directed a couple of episodes of Prisoner as well, eh, nice. Um, This film, I think, still has has aged remarkably well and um, those of you with an interesting kind of um, broader kind of horror stuff would know the name uh, Joe Dante, who did Gremlins and Twilight Zone movie. He's interested, even now, in doing a remake of Thirst. Um, We also had, in 1987, The Outback Vampires. I'm not going to kind of praise that one (laughs) too (laughs) much. But my point is here, my point is here, what these films all share down to their core is a sense of fun. They're kind of silly, they're super fun. And that's, that's really the kind of crunch of what I'm really trying to kind of get you guys to get a handle on. When we think of vampires, we're just as likely to think of kind of crazy, silly, dumb pastiches as we are to think of serious vampire films. So from Warhol's Blood for Dracula to Polanski's Fearless Vampire Killers to Mel Brooks's Dracula and Loving It, There just isn't enough time to name check them all. But what I will say is this, for a whole bunch of reasons to do with big changes in Hollywood in the 1960s and 50s, things like drive-ins and grindhouses, changes to home entertainment, things like cable TV, home video, all of this kind of stuff, there's never been a lack of demand for films like this, these kind of crazy, funny, smutty vampire films. For every hunger, there's a once bitten. For every near dark, there's a Polish vampire in Burbank. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, cry, cry. (laughs) This sense of fun, of course, is always always transferred over to television. Even if we put aside sitcoms like The Monsters and The Addams Family, TV hosts like Elvira and Vampira, or animated characters such as Count Duckula and Quackula, I'm assuming that most of you guys are like me and got your really primary formative mathematics education from this gentleman here. (laughs) Um, We might think of vampire television being a relatively recent phenomenon, but vampires have appeared in everything from Astro Boy to Fantasy Island to Buck Rogers to Get Smart. And, of course, things like Vampire Diaries and True Blood were predated by 90s series like Forever Night and Ultraviolet, as well as things that we know perhaps more readily, like Buffy. So the question that... um, the panel's kind of based around tonight is a really interesting one. It's this idea of who are the real vampires. And I guess some of the movies and TV shows that I've talked about um, will guide you guys perhaps to my answer. Uh, in Australia in particular, when I think of real vampires, I think of people like this. This is uh, Tracy Wigginton, who's in jail for 13 years to life in Queensland for murdering a man for drinking his blood in the early 1990s. Um, And, of course, we have Shane Abbott, who's been in the papers recently, um, because the police have just offered a $1 million reward for information about his murder in 2003, and he identified as a vampire. This is really ugly, grisly, sad, tragic stuff. Um, And for me, these are the real vampires. If these are your role models, you knock yourself out and go for it. I'm not going to stop you. For me, I'm going to be at home on my couch... Watching beautiful people with high cheekbones, <laughs> doing whatever they want, whether they want to sparkle, whether they want to stab—I don't care what they want to do, as long as they're not doing this. I'm kinda happy. Uh, whatever flies your kite. I guess uh, just I kind of dropped the mood there a little bit, so I just wanted to perk you all up again. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Thank you.
6: Wow, awesome. <laughs>
1: Like, chair alterage, perhaps. I can do
6: it from here, I think.
1: Okay. okay. All right, well, up next I want to introduce our, um, uh, another esteemed uh, panellist, Count Martin Pedler, who's <laughs> a writer and pop culture critic. Um, he is the film critic for Triple J's J Mag, the comic book columnist for the literary site Book and maybe halfway through his PhD on superheroes, maybe. he asked me to write that. Yeah.
6: <laughs> I wanted that maybe, definitely. Maybe, yeah. Um, Okay. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that I have not seen read or absorbed every vampire story in what Alex called the vampire ballpark. So no one has. Um, There's just too goddamn many of them. Um, It's one of the things I admire about Jefferson Twilight, who's the vampire hunter in The Venture Brothers by Adult Swim. Have people seen this? He only hunts blackulars. And I think that's charmingly specific of him. <laughs> Only black Dracula's. Um, but it's this endless sea of vampire stories that makes them so interesting to me. It's not necessarily the subtexts. Um, we could be here all night arguing subtexts. Certainly, the long standing debate about Edward Cullen's abusive boyfriend could keep us here for quite a while. Um, <laughs> And equally, as far as True Blood goes, I think the moment they reveal that Jessica's hymen grows back magically and re virginizes her every night in season two, you could hear the first year Cinema Studies essays just starting, (laughs) starting to write. But that's that's not really what I'm going to talk about. Um, What makes vampire stories interesting to me is what happens when you tell the same kind of story over and over again and the small variations that occur. Um, Vampire movies and books and TV shows, they're not really a genre. Like, they lend themselves to horror, but it's obviously not that simple because if it was, Vampire Diaries would be more like Nosferatu than it is like Dawson's Creek. (laughs) And I think you'll agree that that's not the case. Um, Now, I spend quite a bit of my academic time looking at comic books and superheroes. Um, And superheroes and vampires actually have quite a lot in common. And I'm not just talking about Baron Blood, the Nazi vampire on the left, or Morbius, the living vampire on the right. Um, There is also a parallel universe where Batman drinks blood, but I think Angela's going to mention that in passing. Um, It's that writer Grant Morrison might have explained it best when he said that he wasn't sure if superheroes were a genre at all. Maybe they're just a kind of special chili pepper like ingredient that's designed to energize other genres. So, look at how From Dusk Till Dawn is a crime movie for the first half, and then a vampire movie for the second half, or um, Park Chan-wook's new film Thirst, which is a kind of sort of adaptation of a classic novel, a classic vampire-free novel that he threw vampires into for some extra melodrama. Um, Certainly, the vampire private eye story has become a staple of TV over the last few decades as well. Um, This idea of taking something and energising it with vampires is certainly true if you look at vampire-themed products. Um, So you can basically get any day-to-day product and slap something vampiric on it and make yourself quite a lot of money, Um, like this hilariously creepy shower
4: curtain.
6: I wanted to make the most of the R rating here tonight, and I plan to swear quite a lot, if that helps, but also by showing the unofficial Twilight dildo. Have people seen that? It? It's pale, it sparkles if you put it in the light, and it retains temperature, so you can put it in the refrigerator for the full vampiric experience. LAUGHTER um, It's hilarious. They can't use any of the official names, so the blurb just has, like, perfect for a new moon, because it wants to get in your Google results. It's a little awkward. Um, Buffy fans in the room, however, you should probably climb off your high horse about now. Um, Buffy merchandise is equally as ridiculous, including this, a box with a piece of wood in it. That costs $100 US. The blogger on the site I found this on ends up by saying, so help me, if I find out you've bought this, I'm going to go to your house and punch you. (laughs) Anyway, so vampire stories have these common factors that appear in most of them. Let's say drinking blood is is kind of a given. Um, And these elements are repeated, and then small variations start to occur as movies search for novelty. Um, If you push this too far, you end up in arguments about what's a real vampire and what's not. Like, say, George Romero's Martin. Um, Martin certainly thinks he's a vampire. But in the film, we probably just think he's a serial killer with delusions of vampireness. Um, or, say, a vampire who doesn't drink blood, or even is even a vegetarian, and is perhaps a duck. <laughs> so does Count Duck count as a real vampire? Um, One of the recent examples of this that was really interesting was director Guglielmo del Toro has co-written a book about a vampire plague sweeping through New York. Um, These vamps drink blood, but they don't have individual personalities or even fangs. The book describes in great detail how they turn their kind of throats and esophaguses inside out to shoot out a kind of squishy pink stinger with a little thing on the end, and they suck blood through it, and then they excrete clouds of ammonia it's charming. (laughs) Um, Now the book goes to great lengths to justify with kind of faux scientific terms these new sorts of vampires, but it struck me as funny how they're happy to fall back on vampire law when they want to. So these vampires still can't cross running water. Why? Well, it's, it's just the rules. Shut up. (laughs) And the book doesn't explain it beyond that. Um, So it's, Vampire stories are always talking about the rules of being a vampire. When the Scream movies did this for slasher films, everyone thought it was witty postmodernism, but vampire stories have been doing it forever. Um, And thanks to the long-term popularity of vampires, the characters in the stories are often as aware of the rules as we are in the audience. We share this same world of popular culture. So here you can see Damon from The Vampire Diaries reading Twilight, and lamenting the loss of Anne Rice because she was so on it. Um, Now, Alex has given a brief history of vampires, and so you can see here how new vampires try and insert themselves into this pop culture history. Um, When Dracula appeared on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, Spike disliked him not just because apparently Dracula owed him money, but because Dracula (laughs) let Bram Stoker write a book about how to kill them, and so that's how the secret got out. Um, In the show, they treat Dracula like a kind of special celebrity guest star from mythology. Um, It's no surprise either that the vampire hunters in The Lost Boys are comic book geeks. They're the ones with the pop culture knowledge to go what to do. Corey Feldman, the greatest of the Corey's there. (laughs) Now, a film like Near Dark actually plays with the reverse of this idea. And one of the reasons Near Dark feels so new is that it refused to say the word vampire. So um, the characters in the story didn't seem to know what these creatures were, and that gave them a new kind of mystery. This idea was spoofed hilariously in Shaun of the Dead, where Shaun doesn't want anyone to use the Z word to describe zombies because it's ridiculous and it just bothers him. and Nia Dark is also a great example of this vampires' spice idea. The story goes that Catherine Bigelow wanted to make a Western and couldn't get funding for it. So she was like, well, what if it's a vampire Western? And suddenly the funding started to flow. Um, this quote doesn't actually have anything to do with the picture. I just wanted to show it. They look so happy. Now... It's common to see scenes like this one in True Blood, where a mortal quizzes a vampire on which rules are true and which are just mythology. And it's one of my favourite parts of vampire stories, is seeing which new wrinkle they'll add or or subtract. Um, So, you know, does sunlight make them fade gracefully away or barbecue? Um, If they're not invited in, do they bang amusingly up against a glass wall, a la spike in the bottom right, or do they slowly hemorrhage like the vampires in Let the Right One In? Um, Fang choice is also interesting Horrible animalistic canines In 30 days of night No fangs at all in the classic Art house sex romp the hunger Or perhaps my favourite Do their entire jaws open To eat your head (laughs) As we saw in Blade (laughs) 2 Now In something like True Blood Bill can happily pose with townsfolk And get his photo taken to appeal to them Um, In the high-concept show Being Human that's been recently playing on TV, it's a concept about a vampire, a werewolf and a ghost sharing a house together. The vampire at one point watches vampire pornography, which is like a sex death tape, but the vampire doesn't show up on screen. So you just have the mortal kind of jerking around like a sadomasochistic (laughs) mind. LAUGHTER The stuff I'm really interested in is when you push this as far as it will go. So, as Alex mentioned, the show um, Ultraviolet, the British show, where vampires can't use any of this technology, meaning they can't even be heard on the phone because their voices don't reflect. So, it's often these kind of variations that stay with me long after I've forgotten plots or characters. It's these tweaks to the mythos. Um, The website io9 last week joined in the vampire fever and created a chart of all the different vampires and their different characteristics. Do they have souls? Do they have fangs? Etc. I give full points to True Blood, actually. One of the cleverest little twists I thought they ever did was having Bill announce that the vampires purposely spread fictional stories about themselves. So they're helping to create these stories in order to hide their weaknesses. These kind of comparisons between vampire stories aren't value-neutral name-dropping, though. In Martin, as you can see here, it's all about the difference between his reality as a serial killer and his fantasy life of wanting to be a vampire. But in something like True Blood, when Sam wishes that Buffy or Blade would come to town and kill all the vampires, he's not referencing other real vampire hunters within the reality of the show. He's referencing TV shows. So what he's actually saying is, we're real, and they're just on TV. It's the same way that a vampire story that says crosses don't work on vampires is actually saying, all those other movies you've been watching with the crosses do work, they're just fiction, but we're going to tell you the real story. Um, It's a technique most commonly associated with the fairly insane but always entertaining French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, whose name I have just mangled as if I had (laughs) fake vampire fangs in my mouth... Um, His theory was that Disneyland was built because it was so openly fake that it would convince you the rest of America was real by comparison. (laughs) This is the same logic that vampire movies use. Um, So other vampire stories, stupid myths, whichever one you're watching now, the real deal. Um, Vampire stories can actually treat their fans in the same way. There's an episode in season two of Buffy called Lie to Me about a group of vampire fans who worship vampires and want to be sad and beautiful like them and watch old vampire movies. As the people watching the show, we are reassured that we're not like these loser fans. (laughs) We're the real fans who get it. Um, And this actually repeats with these strange vampire fans as seen in a lot of different vampire shows. Um, This brings me, inevitably, to what I'm going to call the War on Twilight. Um, I was at Comic-Con this year in San Diego, and there was no doubt that the people there really didn't like Twilight. In fact, there was more than one person walking around with these scions. Now, I I want to talk a little bit about why Twilight has been singled out for such mockery. Do not answer that question yet. (laughs) I do think a lot of it is sexism, pure and simple. I think if it didn't have a massive female fan base, there wouldn't be this weird, ooh, girls have come into Comic-Con, gross (laughs) attitude that a lot of fans are taking. Um, But it's got to be more than that, too. Because certainly, if it's about being a real fan, a dedicated fan, Twilight fans are more dedicated than anyone. They queued long and hard and gave the Joss Whedon fans a run for their money. And Joss Whedon fans are terrible. <laughs> so, it can't just be that. Now, vampires might not be a genre then, but they certainly lend themselves to specific storytelling tropes. Um, Like, one, I think, is the faux-drug sequence. There's a lot of, in vampire movies or books, when you're transformed and suddenly your senses are so vivid and you walk around going, the paper, it is so smooth. And (laughs) Anne Rice got a lot of mileage out of these kind of purple prose stoner sequences. Um, I think that's what leads nicely into True Blood's V sequences, which use much the same logic. Um, But another storyline that vampires lend themselves to, obviously, is the eternal romance plot. Um, the immortality that's usually attributed to vampires lets them do the good old I've loved you for thousands of years romance. Um, It was the one major change made in Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Dracula was to insert this I've loved you for thousands of years romantic plotline running through it. This kind of cross-cultural romance, you know, the I love you, but I'm immortal and you're a vampire, it will never work romance, Let's writers stretch out romantic plot lines. Um, we've seen something like this in movies like The Lake House, warning, not vampires. Um, but the poster really does look like a vampire movie poster. Um, as... The kind of boundaries of black and white or rich and poor weren't enough obstacles for romantic couples to overcome in fiction. Fiction has turned to science fiction and fantasy to place these obstacles there. So here, it's time travel. In vampire movies, there's obviously the whole species-drinking blood factor to work through. Now, the fact that vampires don't age lets them use the creepy child motif, interview with the vampire, the short-lived Blade TV series, which I think I'm the only person in the world to have watched. I watched it. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But it also lets vampires stay prettily adolescent forever. Um, You combine eternal youth with eternal romance. This seems pretty inevitable, (laughs) I think, as an outcome. Um, So... God knows that True Blood is a soap opera as well. The fact that Bridget from The Bold and the Beautiful showed up really just rammed that point home for me. Um, I know that some dislike Twilight for taking the sex out of a vampire story. This might be something we can talk about in question time. Um, I think Twilight's still all about sex. It's just that you don't get to see it. It's still obsessed with sex. It's a bit like the vampire porn I mentioned, except instead of one person being invisible, both of them are. Um, (laughs) And if it is meant to be a disguised Mormon lecture on chastity and fidelity, I think the whole overwhelming, I want to fuck you so bad mood, (laughs) kind of takes the sheen off the godliness for me. Um, True Blood certainly isn't more adult than Twilight. In fact, True Blood is gleefully adolescent, and that's one of the things I like about it. Um, In fact, True Blood seems really determined to have its cake and eat it it too when it comes to tone. Um, It walks this tightrope between semi-serious drama and high camp almost parody. I know that in first season, when um, Sookie ran through the graveyard into Bill Arms wearing this dress that was like something off the cover of a romance novel, I was sitting at home watching it going, I have no idea if I'm meant to be laughing or not. And I don't think the show cares whether you're laughing or not. Um, We've certainly seen... Actually, it's something I really like is Fantasia. Now... Fantasia, the worst name bar imaginable, but they get away with the pun because they mock the pun at the same time. Bill explains that vampires are so old that they think puns are still the highest form of humour. I don't know what Acme's excuse is for this (laughs) Um, Now, so Fantasia is a cheesy, tourist-filled Disneyland on top. But then it's revealed in second season, it has a brutal dungeon underneath where people are torn apart. So we've gone from kind of fake to real, but the person doing the tearing apart is Eric with foils in his hair. So we're back to artifice. Um, True Blood itself is fascinating for this stuff. So HBO are now selling a drink called True Blood, a fake version of the real True Blood in the show. The real True Blood in the show is fake blood... But it's called True Blood. This is the most confusing true-fake paradigm since Shadow of the Vampire did the real behind-the-scenes story of Nosferatu. Um, despite all of this craziness and play, though, I don't think there's anything in True Blood that is as weird, shameless, and bugfuck crazy as making vampires sparkle. <laughs> now, at a screening <laughs> in San Diego, One fan screamed out real vampires don't sparkle with absolute hate and venom in her voice. This particular variation on the vampire myth certainly seems to have focused all of the anti-Twilight hate. Um, But you know what? Real vampires can't do anything. They're not real. (laughs) Um, In fact... I have an amusing movie in my head that Twilight's right and all of the other classic vampires from history, like Dracula and Orlok and Nosferatu, will walk out in the sun and be like, I'm so beautiful. (laughs) Um, So, if this kind of thing really bothers you, I would just like to say, if, you know, comic book fans can survive this, (laughs) certainly vampires can survive Twilight. Um, I don't know who we're trying to protect. The vampire mythos has been around for hundreds of years. It's been around before us, and it will be around after us. We don't need to protect them from variations that bother us. Um, If I'd like to play a kind of vampire Martin Luther King, or if you like, Godric, looking particularly sparkly himself here, I think there is enough room for both sparkling and non-sparkling versions in vampire mythology. I think, though, that vampire stories will continue to war like this because that metatextuality I've talked about actually encourages films to play off against each other. Just to finish up, um, I don't know if people are reading the Buffy season eight comics that are continuing on from the TV show. Much like True Blood, they've got a plot that vampires have come out of the coffin and gone public, but cleverly... They figure the vampire zeitgeist is so popular that everyone would believe that vampires are the tortured heroes and that vampire slayers are just stake-wielding psychopaths. Um, the actual villain from Buffy Season 8, you can see here on the right, is this character who's actually called Twilight. Um, they say it was a coincidence, but I'll leave it up to you if you believe them. Thank you. Thank you.
4: <laughs> um, do you want to you want to.
1: Last, but by no means least, um, is Feng Jia, Angela Medellianus, um, who is Associate Professor in Cinema Studies at Melbourne University. Uh, her research focuses on contemporary entertainment culture, media histories, and cross-media collisions, with particular interest in their science fiction and horror manifestations. Her publications include Neo-Baroque um, Aesthetics in Contemporary Entertainment uh, and the Contemporary Comic Book Superhero, Essays in Screen Consciousness, Technology, Cinema, Mind and World, Hop on Pop, The Politics and Pleasures of Popular Cultures, and Rethinking Media Change, The Aesthetics of Transition. Um, She's currently completing the book Spectopolis, Theme Park Cultures. Thanks, Sage.
2: Okay, well, um, what I want to focus on is really to initially provide you with a bit of an overview of the kinds of um, the sort of broad sweep of where vampires have appeared across a diverse range of media. And I, I want to primarily focus in the end at what Alex called hot subversive penetration and to look at the extremes of this and how different media deal with it in different ways um, and end up by also doing a bit of a comparison with the zombies. So, um, there'll be a lot of generalisations by the way in this. So, uh, Mickey up here, I've just got there because it looks nice. Okay, now the comic books were actually one of the areas that really took, embraced the vampire myth um, with zeal, especially in the 70s. And one of the reasons for this was the Hammer Horror, Hammer Horror um, film productions with Christopher Lee. Uh, and they were very sort of highly charged sexually um, and you had series like Dracula Lives, um, The House of Mystery, which frequently featured Dracula and other vampires... Uh, Vampirella was a character who was invented during this period, and as you can see from her costume, um, it didn't leave much to the imagination, really, and Sukia, who I don't know much about, but it looks like she's pretty out there as well in terms of the the um, boobage, the, the yes, the boobage <laughs> levels. Um, so, yes, comic books had that, that presence, and the Dark Shadows was another example that ended up in, in comics, but it was that, I don't know if many of you have seen, this crazy um, TV soap opera that featured the main um, vampire, Barnabas Collins. Um, and it, it's just interesting that during this period it's this kind of very sort of um, stable kind of typology that, that recurs in the films, um, in this, this show, and in the comic books as well. Then we start to get a kind of revisionist approach to uh, the vampire myth that begins with um, examples like Blade but was also played out in Eve, Vampire Diva. Have you come across Eve? Yeah? He's good. He's on top of it. In- and both of these characters are actual hybrids. They're, they're the children of a vampire-human um, mix and their f- role in life is to hunt down those, the evil renegade vampires Um, And other supernatural beings and destroy them. Um, And they were quite, Blade in particular was a very popular character, and now we've seen the spin offs in the films and computer games and so on. And Buffy, of course, belongs to this tradition, but she doesn't have the vampire blood. She's not the sort of hybrid character, she's a different breed, who I think um, emerges thanks to Laurel K. Hamilton's Anita Blake, who I'll mention um, later on. Another, another area where the vampire um, story has taken off is um, in Japanese popular culture, in particular anime and the manga. Um, and the manga especially is quite interesting in and it, 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 it obsessively focuses in particular on, on teen vampire stories. There's Chibi the Vampire, vampire killers, blood relatives and these series sort of continue um, on and on. They've, you know, they, some of them have sort of reached volumes in the, in the 50s um, and they, they sort of continue to be written and they're extremely popular with young girls and the whole sort of sexualized element, I think like Twilight, it's, it's definitely present but there's none of the sort of the hot penetration, if you like, um, that's uh, played out in the narratives themselves. Um, one of the... I think one of the most gorgeous vampire films I've seen is... Um, the Vampire Hunter D series. I don't know if many of you have seen. that They began as a series of novels, um, were uh, appeared in two films, two big um, big release animated films, and also um, then have become a manga series in the last decade. And vamp- that's the, the D character is very much based on that Blade tradition of being the, the hybrid um, child who chases down renegades. But it's set in this kind of um, bizarre fantasy world that seems like it's an aristocratic past of the 17th, 18th century but is also in the future. I won't go into the, the plot. <laughs> even the superheroes, Batman um, and even Superman, I think, had, had his, um, his confrontation with Dracula. One of the most famous Batman-Dracula stories is Red Rain. Um, in this, Batman meets Dracula and he's actually uh, bitten by a vampire and becomes a vampire himself. It was one of the Elseworlds um, spin-off series which imagined superhero characters in sort of other fantasy scapes. And um, what I find interesting about about where this story went was that being very... I mean, the, the, the tropes are all there and the tropes have always been there in Batman, in that, the, you know, the image of the bat, he's a, he's, um, a character who primarily um, deals with the world, I guess, at night time, the way vampires do. And the, the thing with Batman, though, is that his his um, expression in terms of, you know, sexuality and so on is extremely repressed. And this stays put in his myth. So it's like the, the story of the, the superhero that is Batman will take on these vampiric sort of um, uh, symbols and themes, but they won't succumb totally to the, the logic of the vampire uh, genre because the Batman storyline um, overpowers it. But it was quite an interesting series, and there was also an animated cartoon that was released as well. Computer games. <laughs> oh, my God, there's a bit of excitement <laughs> about the computer games. My goodness. Computer games I find interesting because unlike the zombie um, um, subgenre of horror computer games, uh, the vampire computer games, um, aren't, there, there aren't that many of them around. And I, it got me thinking about why possibly this might be the case. And I think a lot of it has to do with the sort of highly charged um, sexuality and, and sensuality of a lot of the vampire stories. Uh, and I think it's something that's very difficult to play out across in, in, in computer games, which require a lot of action and interactivity on the part of the player. Um, with zombie games, the action is sort of obvious. You run around, you kill the zombies, and, and there's your action. In, in the vampire story, you can't really do much with the, the whole sort of the, the exchange of blood scenario that's so integral to the vampire myth. Um, I haven't sort of quite figured that out yet, but I think part of our enjoyment with, um, with vampire, the vampire genre... Um, despite its diversity, as, as everyone's been talking about tonight, I think does have to do with sort of the, the vampire's um, ability to this exchange of blood and the connotations behind it and the kind of sensuality and eroticism that, that um, charges the, the story and the relationship between the characters. And I think this is really overt when you look at something like Vampire Wars on Facebook. I don't know if many of you have actually gotten into that. That's really interesting, but... What it does is it reduces the sort of iconic elements of the genre into scores. So, you know, you you get little messages of, you've just bitten three characters. Um, And while you have, and while it's fulfilling the sort of code um, of the genre, one of the codes of the genre, you don't actually get all the sensory and emotional kind of experience that are usually associated with that, which we do get in the TV shows, in the films, um, and in the books. Also in the comic books, to some extent. So, there's something that seems to be lacking um, in that game, even though I still play it, but anyway. (laughs) All right. What I want to look at now, really, is looking at, I I want to look at sort of the diversity of of, um, the vampire story that has occurred in the last couple of decades in particular. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar, but there are actually a lot of kids' vampire stories out there and they're becoming even more popular. Uh, The Little Vampire series is one of them, um, which began in Germany and uh, there's been a film in the US and I think the story's been written as well uh, for US audiences in the form of of kids' books. Um, But more recently, the the, uh, Let the Right One In, which was a novel that has become a a film, which is quite an amazing film and I think... The stories actually focus on um, young kids, but they also move into the teen um, the teen um, demographic. And what the meaning of the vampire in many of these examples tends to focus not around issues of sexuality, but the vampire as a metaphor, um, it adjusts itself, I guess, to its audience and, and to the, the narrative universe of, that, that um, they belong to. And most usually the vampire becomes a kind of uh, good mediator figure to help the, the main protagonist's children adapt with or deal with issues of bullying, um, friendship, uh, breakups in the family, you know, the single-parent family and so on. And I think Let the Right One In is, is quite an extreme sort of example of that because it is about, you know, a, a, um, the little boy who's... Who's bullied at school? Who's befriended by the vampire? The little girl who also happens to be a few hundred years old, um, who comes from a broken family, and and the whole um, the the film also plays with this sort of context of social decay and social um, corruption, and it deals especially with issues of paedophilia, um, and the book I think deals with it in much more sort of intense ways. But I think this is another thing we should think about in terms of a lot of these vampire. Um, stories and and the whole idea of the vampire as a kind of metaphor uh, because different films tend to deal, and different media examples tend to deal with it in different ways and I think what um, I'm going to make a really big generalisation here but you tend to find that there's a, I I think of it as a kind of stratum, like a a little hierarchy of um, in horizontal ways though of vampire um, vampire meanings if you like And I think on the one side of the scale, you've got the more primal, violent, um, bestial vampire as embodied here in um, the film version of Stephen King's uh, Salem's Lot. And on the other side, you've got the more sort of seductive, sensual, erotic kind of vampire embodied there in uh, Bill from True Blood. Um, And I think what, what... these vampire figures mean adjusts according to the kind of vampire we're looking at. And I think what we have is with the primal vampire, often they're situated in environments that are socially unstable. So it's, it's uh, about placing them in, in decayed sort of social groups and communities. Whereas with the erotic, um, sort of more sensual kind of vampires, there are issues of sexuality that come into play, um, sort of testing the limits of humanity and it 's more a kind of um, exploration, I guess, of the individual kind of um, limits of what is human and when do you move beyond the point where you know, 're crossing the social mores and I just thought just very quickly and it 's not going to oh it is going to play it 's not going to play it's okay. Blast. doesn 't matter um, i'll just talk it was the scene just to show you the I want to talk about the sort of contrasts that exist. Um, even within the sort of erotic vampire tradition, in I think True Blood really plays on this to the extreme. And often it plays with its audience as well, as, as Martin was talking about before. And there's the scene in, in the first episode of season two where uh, Sookie and Bill have the hot sex. For the, in, you, do you all remember that? Think, how can to forget that scene? Yeah, yeah that, that scene. And straight after we cut to the basement where... Um, Eric goes down and just rips one of the, the people he's got down there to, to shreds um, and there's blood everywhere and he's got blood in his tips and he's just disturbed big time. And what you've got in... Um, I think th- th- those two scenes really play on that kind of excess of the vampire traditions where, you know, just when you're being drawn into the eroticism, um, it's also revealed that these characters can take it to another extreme that's, that's really destructive... Um, and it's about destroying what it is to be human. Um, and I think even with, uh, well, if you look at the Murnau tradition and, and, um, and the Werner Herzog revision of, of the tradition as well, I think both of those films were dealing with that sort of primal you know, Count Orlack vampire, uh, but all, also both those films are about you know, individuals and their own repressed sexuality, but they're also about a society that's totally in a state of decay. Um, And, you know, it's played through with um, images of of the plague having hit the community and um, sort of this total sort of decay in quite literal literal ways. And this is also, I think, played through in Stephen King's Salem's Lot. It's about a community, the small-town community, as this kind of microcosm of the USA. And it's about family structures, the family unit collapsing um, in the film... And the the vampire arrives, in a sense, as a kind of symbolic manifestation of that. Uh, And I remember it scared the crap out of me first seeing that film, directed by Toby Hooper, and um, starring the wonderful David Saul from Starsky and Hutch. (laughs) (laughs)
7: Uh,
2: And, of course, 30 Days of Night has followed through this tradition... There's, I don't think there's one sort of sexually charged moment in When Those Vampires Bite. That's about a different kind of, uh, of penetration, I think. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's about sort of the total decimation of humanity uh, that, that these vampires are about. And it's interesting that visually they still recall that, that kind of early Murnau tradition of vampire. I um, think it's quite an amazing uh, film. And, and, of course, it's based on the comic book adaptation. I just thought I'd bring this up because I I was hooked on this series, The Kindred. Did anyone ever see it? It was another hybrid, um, and again, by by introducing the the injecting sort of the uh, gangster kind of genre, mafia genre, with the vampire tradition, it became something quite different. What was interesting about this TV show is that it was all about, you know, corruption of, of humanity through the gangster tradition. But um, or mafia, but they were vampire mafia groups. And the two oppositional groups were the erotic, um, sensual vampire tradition, and on the other side it was the, you know, the bald, um, ugly vampire tradition that we also see played through in the character of the master in the Buffy um, series. Bef- below you see the sort of the antagonist uh, vampire group there. But I think even in the case of the bestial... Um, vampire tradition that Count Orlach embodies in, um, in Nosferatu, I think even there, uh, even in his most sort of vile moments, when when he's drinking Mina's blood at the end of the film, even that is really kind of erotically charged. And there, I think, what it does... I mean, sure, this, you know, watching that, that scene doesn't sort of you know, mean that I need to be hosed down, because it's not that excessive. It's not like the Bill and Sookie scene... But nevertheless, uh, it is really sexually charged, um, and just you know, looking at him, he's—I he, mean—he's a walking penis with teeth in a really tailored suit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what more can I say about that? <laughs> so, th- there's something that these films, what, what I'm saying, is something that these examples of you know, depending on whichever medium they are, uh, that do um, address in us our, our kind of. Yeah, the limits of, of how we're willing to express our sexuality, I guess. <laughs> what I want to do now is sort of turn to kind of literary tradition as well. Um, and we've seen, you yeah, with Twilight, um, it's the it, based on the very popular um, young adult novels. And the Vampire Diaries, same thing, and now we've got the, the TV series as well. But there are hundreds of them online. I hadn't realised how many teen and young adult um, novels there are out there. Jessica's Guide to Dating on the Dark Side, especially uh, interesting. And again, these, these, um, this uh, particular grouping of vampire uh, literature and now TV shows addresses you know, specific teen needs and concerns and part of those, some of those concerns have to do with sexuality Um, and and the expression sort of needs, but it's also about, you know, coupling and and becoming adults and um, dealing with that liminal space between being a kid and being an adult and so on. But it's the adult vampire stories I want to turn to now. Um, There's a huge... There are thousands and thousands and thousands of these things, and they're extremely popular. And I don't know if any of you have been to the Romantic Bookshop on Lonsdale Street... Um, I remember a few years ago there was just you know, a couple of shelves of these things and now it's an entire section um, unto itself. I think even Borders um, in Ligon Street has, has uh, a whole section of this stuff. Um, and most of the authors are, are female writers uh, and one of the most influential, I guess, and popular would be Laurel K. Hamilton who you see up here. Um, and she's responsible for the famous Anita Blake uh, vampire hunter series. Anita Blake's character, she's a necromancer who raises the dead uh, so that they can be questioned um, in you know, situations where murder's taken place or robbery's taken place. So they'll go to the graveyards and bring up the dead and lawyers will question them and then she lets them go back into the earth. But she also is a sheriff who hunts down renegade vampires. And her main lover is a, a, a vampire, Jean-Claude, who's a very sexy vampire. Um, but Anita also, while not, while being quite a shy person, apparently, oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she also reaches the point in um, by novel I don't know novel eight maybe where she's with about fifteen. Supernatural beings? But she has to be, though. She has something, to be. Because. Something
1: metaphysical's metaphysical happening. E- exactly. Yeah. Her, her
2: vampire lover, Jean Claude, um, through this whole thing that I won't go into, has passed on the adieu. And it means that she needs to have sex, otherwise bad things will happen. Uh, so whenever. <laughs> so whenever she has the adieu, whatever supernatural being is around, um, she, she has to uh, make the best of them. Yeah. Really? And by feeding, instead of feeding the way a vampire feeds, she feeds through sex, uh, which, of course, links the whole blood um, exchange of the vampire with, with the, the sex part of things. Um, what, was, what was important about Laurel K. Hamilton's series is that she introduced new features into the, the whole sort of supernatural romance story. Um, I think Vampire Diaries, I think, had been written way before the Anita Blakes, uh, but this was a whole sort of different ball game because here we had a female character who was the, the character who was responsible for the, the action of the narrative. It was none of the men who were responsible for it. She's the one who's sort of in active, active um, control. We had the, the new convention of supernatural beings who'd come out. So they were, they were part of the community um, and they were given their, own, you know, their rights as vampires or as werewolves or as shapeshifters and... Um, and that becomes a really popular convention in many of the, the supernatural romances that now now exist. So, yeah, Laurel K. Hamilton is an extremely important figure. And there have been crossovers into the comics as well. Uh, and here you see Jean-Claude and her werewolf lover, Richard, who is very boring and dull. He wants her for himself. Because he's a werewolf he's man. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know, I know. It's bad. It's bad. And here's the lovely Charlene Harris um, who is responsible for the the Sookie series that really does rely on the whole Anita Blake tradition, though she takes it into different directions as well. But, you know, I could go on and on with these these female writers. (laughs) But what I want to do instead is just... I want to set up this kind of comparison here. And I'm interested in the fact that the vampires have gone through this kind of renaissance, especially in TV... um, and in the, the cinema, not as much, but television, they, they have got you know, quite a huge kind of um, uh, following in terms of shows that are coming out, but in particular, manga and anime as well. Uh, the zombies, on the other hand, have had a resurgence in the, in the cinema with the, the whole sort of 28 Days Later and, and so on tradition that, that has been... Um, following throughout the last few years. And, of course, recently there have been other kinds of uh, variations on a theme, if you like, with Pride and Prejudice and zombies being released, so classics being transformed into the, the zombie tradition. And I don't know if any of you have read it, but it's actually quite funny in that it keeps with the, the serious tone, um, and the girls talk about you know, the unmentionables, and the girls have all been trained in the martial arts. Their father sent them to a Shaolin master in China, uh, so they all know how to defend themselves when they walk across the meadows and are um, pounced on by by unmentionables. What I'm interested in, though, is the difference in terms of the erotics of the zombie compared to the erotics of the vampire, because they're both considered monstrous in, in the sense of the horror tradition, but both, I guess, have very, very different kinds of... Um, You wouldn't call a zombie a sort of sensual kind of creature, really. But there are so many similarities, though, because both the vampire and the zombie are undead. Um, Both of them play on this idea of the limits of of the human, but I think the zombie is more about uh, embodying, I guess, problems in the social and making us question the literal sort of limits of of humanity um, in very real life and death kinds of terms. Um, but what I wanted to do in order to get this um, comparison across is, I don't know if any of you have read the, um, the Christine Fian books, which are the, the dark series. Now, Fian sets up her own kind of mythology of, um, of the vampire tradition and vampires are seen as, as actually being genetically different to humans. Uh, they belong to the race of the Carpathians um, and each vampire or Carpathian male is genetically meant to be with a female and when they meet that female they're just you know you just know that they're meant to be together and what I want to do is actually read a passage from, um, from Christine Fian's uh, book Dark Gold <laughs> 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 and then do a bit of a comparison with, with um, something else. All right, I better put the glasses on for this one. Lucky the lights are, are dim. All right, um, th- this is between the, the couple that's meant to be the vampire and his, his female, and they're in the midst of it here. Aidan closed his eyes in ecstasy as her tongue moved in a slow languid caress over his velvet tip. I don't, I don't <laughs> think she's referring to his pen either. His stomach muscles tightened as her mouth tight and hot and moist closed around him. I'm editing a passage here. Her fingers massaged his buttocks, pressing hard into the heavy muscles, urging him on. He moved a a slow, long stroke, gritting his teeth against the pleasure that nearly consumed him. Her mouth moved over him again and again. His hands bunched in her hair so hard he was afraid he might hurt her. He couldn't control the involuntary response. His mind sought hers, and they also had the telepathy thing happen, and he found excitement and need, a total sharing of his pleasure. I've just jumped a whole page, sorry everybody. His tongue took the watery, sorry, the water from the rosy hard tips, they're in a bathtub by the way, and moved upward, (laughs) tracing swelling curves until his mouth rested over a pulse in her neck. Here we're getting to the good stuff. He felt her body clench in anticipation and his teeth scraped gently back and forth until she moaned and caught at his head with both hands. Aiden, her soft cry was a plea. Not yet, Kara, not yet. Her nails dug into his shoulders in exquisite pain. He leaned against her the wall for better against the wall for better leverage. His hips savage, relentless, frenzied. Her teeth scraped, nipped, then Oh, sorry, his teeth scraped and nipped because he's the vampire. (laughs) Then she cried out at at, at the piercing pain, so sweet and sensual as his fangs buried themselves deep, claiming her body as voraciously as his body was claiming hers. She had driven him wild and his predatory nature took over, the untamed male of his species, dominant, possessive, claiming his mate. Um, Ruby droplets trickled down the swell of her breasts and his tongue followed the trail and so on and so forth. Now, what's interesting there is the very sort of monstrousness of the, that is the vampire is something that's quite sensual and erotic um, in, in all of these examples, but also in many of the films and the TV shows and you know, examples like True Blood, it's, it's there. That's, it's, it's, um, I guess it's a moment that is exploring a limit, but it's a limit about what threshold you'll cross in terms of expression of... Um, ...in in terms of expressing yourself uh, during sex and and your own sexuality. Now, there has been um, very... ...there have been no zombie love stories yet. But these two are about to be released. Hungry for Your Love and My Zombie Valentine. Mm -hmm. Hungry for Your Love, I think, has just been released in the US... ...and and My Zombie Valentine is coming out in January... But even with these, from what I can gather from um, the blurbs about them, they're, little, they're anthologies and um, they're, all of them, from what I can see, are very tongue-in-cheek um, and they sort of take the mickey out of, out of the kind of possibility of having a zombie love story. So I thought what I'd do is make up my own zombie love story and read it to you to sort of talk about the differences, I guess, in, in terms of... Yeah, the, despite the similarities of um, our, yeah, the vampire and the zombie in terms of their undeadness. I don't believe I'm doing this, but anyway. <laughs> Let me have some water first, Amy. Is it? that
1: your pseudonym, by the way?
2: Candy to Divine? I'm Candy Divine, nice. thank you. <laughs> Triggered by a lingering memory of what he should be feeling, Damien attempted to recall the sensation of ecstasy. Ah, it was slowly coming back to him now. He could feel her soft, wound-free hands running across the sensitive, open wounds that were scattered across his once tight, taut abdomen. (laughs) With searching fingers, Sylvie, that's her heroine, glided over the the multiple festering sores (laughs) and lingered briefly at his belly button. And before he knew what was happening, he realised that she'd plunged one of those delicate fingers deep into the tiny cavity, puncturing his flesh to seek out the muscle beneath the skin. (laughs)
5: Looking
2: down briefly with one eye that was still intact, (laughs) he caught a glimpse of a rancid, oozing substance that erupted from the new opening. Abandoning his open wound, Sylvie continued to move downwards, all the while wondering if her attempts at lovemaking were having an effect on her zombie lover. She decided to take the deep primal growls as signs in the affirmative. As if in response to her thoughts, the growl lowered an octave or two as she moved to capture what had once been his manhood. (laughs) Could it still be his manhood, she wondered, as she gently encased his cold, clammy tip with her lips. (laughs) You can see I'm playing on the theme of the previous vampire bit that I read. (laughs) Ugh, came the response. (laughs) Encouraged by the groaning, with her left hand, she gripped onto his left buttock, squeezing him tight in anticipation of what was to come. The putrid, rancid stench hit her first... She gently squeezed Damien's butt one more time, only to discover that a chunk of rotting flesh had detached itself from his body. <laughs> Caught up in his newly awakened, frenzied state of zombie love, he didn't seem to care, grabbing her instead by the hair and refocusing, on her, refocusing her mouth on the task at hand. I must be doing something right, Sylvie thought, as she plunged her mouth aggressively onto him. And then, snap, crunch. Uh Uh-oh, she muttered through a mouth filled with rotting meat. (laughs) So, I guess what I'm saying is it's going to take a lot to produce a a romantic uh, zombie uh, supernatural uh, novel. Um, And I think one of the primary differences is where the vampire, even in their undeadness, they they somehow call up um, everything that's about being alive and living and expressing, um, expressing yourself, I guess, to the limits. With the, va- with the zombie, um, the fear is about contagion and the whole notion of disgust is about wanting to distance ourselves from that contagion because... The, the zombie very much symbolises death, whereas I think the vampire doesn't. It's a sort of death that's also about life. It's about these kind of ambiguities. And I might leave it there, and we can discuss in <laughs> question time. Can we get the lights off? It's Time to Q <laughs> <here>
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. huh? now I believe that there are a couple of roving. Yes. Anna has the mics. One here. And Do we have any questions for the panel?
0: I don't know if I can do anything except shake my head at you, Candy Divine. <laughs> <laughs> do we have any questions from the floor? Yep, right over there, Rachel. Um,
1: hi. Um, because it's a fan thing, of course, I have to do the kind of like sniffy fan thing of saying that there is the uh, zombie film Dead Girl, um, which is not out here yet, but because we all read the internet, we've all seen the trailer. Oh. Um, where there's some teenage boys come across a zombie girl tied to a mattress in a hospital and suddenly realise she can't say no. Um, okay. And it looks quite good. And she's a sexy zombie. Um, the, the teaser trailer is real that she's kind of hot, but like her fundamental eroticism there is that she can't say no.
2: I think the films have crossed that boundary. Yeah. Because uh, there's also zombie strippers.
1: Oh, yes, with the Janet Jameson. Yeah. But I, I had another question... Why do you think in, zombie romance, or in vampire romances, vampires are always dudes unless they're lesbians? Mm. That's it. Mm.
2: I don't think that's the case, is it? Now, of course, that you say this is the <laughs> only ones I can think of, but...
1: Well, they're always mm. dudes or they're lesbians.
6: Well, true blood's got Jessica. True. Yeah. That's one. That's one.
7: <laughs> that, that opens up a really... Really She's important question about always, pleasure. Yeah. So there's a lot of heterosexual sex in vampire stuff, but there's that assumption that if it's the male vampire, then the pleasure is male. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's I mean, that's a kind of interesting question. Yeah. Like, who has the pleasure mm. in vampire sex? Um, is it, you know... Is it you? I'm <laughs> <laughs> you asked the question. I'm thinking it's you. <laughs>
2: I, th- oh. I think what's interesting about True Blood, though, is that... Um, I guess conventionally people think of the vampire sex as the perverse sex, whereas yeah. True Blood actually plays it as the, the normal sex compared to the kinds of things that take place between normal heteros out there yeah. in, the, in the dark woods of wherever they are.
7: I mean, there is a lot. If you think about Near Dark, if you think about um, Lost Boys, Star and the Lost Boys, yes. yep. is, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a straighter lady. Mm. Um, pointy-toothed as she may be. I think there's a lot, <laughs> but perhaps we remember the lesbian ones because they're the kind of, you know, it's that kind of, that, that hammer titillation, that kind of adolescent titillation, mm. and, and I use the word titillation very deliberately here. <laughs> so two chicks getting it on. <laughs> like that kind of <laughs> Neanderthal kind of attitude towards it. I don't think that um, Perhaps we don't notice the straight vampires <laughs> as much.
2: I, and also, um, a lot of a lot of uh, genre theorists, horror theorists, have, have argued that all vampires are really feminine uh, because of the whole sort of feeding on blood um, and the orality of the, the whole sort of
6: blood sucking business. Having to Google vampires do sparkle and vampires don't sparkle, there is a lot of crazy. Oh my God, vampires are gay! Websites out there, so. I think this certainly ties into it.
7: This was a big kind of thing of mine that I was actually going to talk about, but I deleted the whole... um, I'm sure that you guys have seen it, and and I actually cut it because I I didn't want to use the slide, but the whole Edward is a faggot. Mm. And I I think it's a really interesting choice of words. I just... uh, I don't use it to upset anybody. or to be offensive. But the whole, you know, the Lugosi. this is a vampire. Mm. Edward, this is a faggot. There's a real meme about this. Mm. And it's like... Accusing vampires of being queer is like watching a snail yeah. try to defend itself with salt. Yeah. Of course they're queer. It's about penetrating anything you can get your hands on. It's, it's an insane accusation to, to use homophobia to attack vampires. Mm. It's nuts. Um, I mean, we're through the looking glass with these people. We're, we're, <laughs>
6: there. we're, 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 we're so all on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> um, we actually had a question we were talking about before this started, which was we realised none of us have talked about vampires being scary or any vampire text being scary, does anyone have any actual frightening, oh, my God, vampire films? Or have we just put them into another box altogether? Count
2: Yorga vampire. Oh, he was a nasty piece of work. (laughs) You sound like you dated him. Oh, he's (laughs) terrible. I I watched his films with Count Yorga when I was a a teenager, and I remember one scene where he had his, his, um, his minions eat little kittens... And I thought, you're an evil bastard. Yeah. How, how, that, I mean, that's just
3: bad.
7: <laughs> There's one. couple. Awesome. Scary vamps.
3: Hi, guys.
1: I was um, wondering if there'd ever been a study of the economy of vampires because it occurs to me that, you know, if people are mainstreaming, then it's going to have an impact on, you know, what they get charged for insurance. I mm-hmm. mean, um, yeah. in what interests are banks going to pay? Yeah. In my mind, if, ma- if vampires were mainstream, it would, it would break our economic systems.
6: Well, you've tapped into something. that's exactly one of my great about. disappointments about True Blood is I think it's ignoring its most interesting ideas, which is the idea that vampires have gone public. When the viral marketing campaign that I showed a slide from has actually addressed this more than anything in the show, I think maybe that's a sign they're missing some pretty fertile ground to do kind of more traditional vampire politics and sex yeah. stuff. I want to see what immortality does to interest rates. You know, I think this is, this is a fascinating area.
7: You're getting old, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> That's very- I mean, we were actually talking before, like, vampires
1: are usually aristocratic, wealthy, incredibly wealthy figures, because obviously they
7: live forever. Where are the poor... Are there poor vampires? I, I feel really strongly about this. Is I mean, I think real? of Near Dark. Yeah. Um, for anybody else? Let for the sure right one in. Yep. The it's, little girl. Yep. Yeah. Not a lot of poor vampires. Not a whole bunch of black vampires, except for Blackula Blade. Yeah. A couple of token ones. True. But okay. we're talking about a really white, middle-class yeah. bunch of pointy Come on, people. though. But if you've
2: been around for a while, you're know you you're going to accumulate some wealth. Don't so defend
6: them. It is one of the nice not. things about Blade, I think, though, is that you get to see these kind of urban black vampires. Mm. Like kill rich white vampires, which is long overdue in vampire yeah. stories, I think. I was just going to say the, uh, uh, what is it, um, uh, Twilight, not
4: Twilight, um, <laughs> those Russian... Uh, Nightwatch. Ah. Nightwatch, yeah, because yeah. they had that. you know, his neighbour was a vampire and he had huge bats of big blood. A bottle of
7: true blood to you, sir. <laughs> Good work, yeah. Um, Over here.
4: Um, So that last speaker, you were talking about how uh, films like Salem's Lot were were showing sort of how repressed sexuality and social decay brought these vampires out. Um, I mean, we see a lot of repressed sexuality in True Blood and Twilight, but do you think you see any social decay in Mm -hmm. those arenas?
2: Yeah, I think you do. Um, um, What's the friend's name?
4: Lafayette.
2: Not Lafayette, the the girl. um,
5: Oh, Tara. Tara,
2: and her mother is is one example of a breakdown of family and mother-daughter relationship and the mother's an alcoholic, Um, there's a number of... of, It's mainly sort of uh, couples in disarray. So it's about relationships more than anything else. But then I think in the second series, you get into that whole Bible-bashing extremist religion uh, Mm. storyline, which dominates the entire series. And I think that's very much about what ha- what's happening in America now—that kind of extremist right-wing um, conservatism that that the show really takes the piss out of. Yes.
5: Up the back. I was just going to ask that, or make an observation, and see if we have any comments on it, about kind of some of the similarities between the form in the televisual sense that you were saying that the mythology
6: can change from season to season based on either popularity or different ideas. And you pointed out the same thing happening in some of the um, written form as well, like as the books advanced, some of the mythology changes. And is that something that's unique to those forms? It's
5: different to a filmic version? Me? I don't know, I'm looking at you, but go. <laughs> Would
2: well, you want to tell us? Go on, go on, I have talked too much.
1: I don't know, I mean, like... I think that when you've got, like, one running series, like, I'm addicted to the Laurel K. Hamilton as well series that Ange was, Ange was talking about, like, which is prime for kind of, like, television adaptation in the same way that the, you know, Southern Vampire series of Charlene Harris also, you know, prime for, mm. for TV rather than film because you're building kind of complex character arcs that can get played out across multiple, mm. multiple seasons. I actually
2: think the True Blood series has um, developed some of the issues in far more interesting ways compared to the books.
4: Mm.
6: But it's also, I think, that, again, like superheroes, there's the connection that vampire stories are obsessed with origin stories. So there's always the who side who, and you kind of, the kind of books that require a little chart in the front is part of the pleasures of vampire stories. And I guess that's something that can be much more easily explored in ongoing television series.
1: That's true. They do that in True Blood as well. The origin becomes really important. Like, Mm -hmm. how did Eric become Mm -hmm. Eric?
6: No vampire show is complete without dodgy flashbacks. (laughs) And the wonders of immortality (laughs) means you don't have to put makeup on people because they always look the same. So, mm. (coughs) Who can forget Angel's Irish accent? Not to mention the hairstyle. No! You promised!
2: Is there a question over here? It's not
3: really a question. It's more of a comment on the... uh, Economic status. Um, you, you're all no doubt aware about the uh, fake vampire and um, cases of real vampires, and most of those tend to be your peasants rather than your aristocracy. Um, and of the earlier stories, uh, Varney the vampire is not an aristocrat. He's a common man who um, gets turned, if you like, um, through committing bad... Acts during the uh, English Civil War. Mm-hmm. It's only when you get to Stoker and mm-hmm. Fanu that you, you start to get the aristocratic mm-hmm. vampire established as the, the main form, and that doesn't start to change until late 50s. Mm-hmm. A little bit after that, one of the first ones I think where you get a common vampire in film right. is um, probably an unknown for most of you, uh, I made uh, How I Made a Monster or something like that. So it was a follow-up to I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Oh. Uh, it's in the later television series where you start to get commonplace, common vampires. Yeah. So most of the vampires in Buffy aren't of an aristocratic yeah. form and most of the ones that we see nowadays, including Bill, oh. are pretty much common people. I just yeah. want that. With, with big southern property, yeah, though, in the case but of... Yeah, they've inherited that, like, from the Civil
1: War.
6: Yeah. Look, yeah. I'm certainly no mythology expert, but I believe that way back, early vampires were more kind of zombie-vampire hybrid things, right? Can the, anyone like back me up on this? the primal stuff that Ange
1: was talking yeah. about
6: mm. I think the early vampire, though, also played
2: a lot on class systems and class structures. You're right. Um, and it was very much set against the sort of repressive values of Victorian society... Uh, and it was, it was still played on that kind of English hierarchy of you know, the working classes and, um, and the upper classes, and the vampire did develop the Dracula kind of myth does develop in that you know, the, the aristocrat is on top, and um, it was, in a sense, a kind of critique of, of that structure in, in a bizarre way. Uh, but I think what changed the contemporary culture was the introduction of, of the vampire story into the teen films, Um, where you had that crossover and it starts with that, you know, I was a teenage werewolf tradition where um, it it then becomes, the vampire then becomes a way of dealing sort of teen life and teen culture. Um, What's the classic, the remake of the the Dracula story with... um, Ah, classic vampire film. And I forgot what it is. (laughs) The vampire moves in next door and um, oh, there's uh, the team. Oh, Frighteners. Fr- no, 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 not Fright, Fright, night. Night. Fright Night. Fright night. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a classic example of, of that change. It's you know, the average suburban family being exposed to, to vampires and, and um, lost, lost boys. Mm-hmm.
7: This also feeds in, sorry, just quickly, with that kind of the idea of the, the kind of queering or the, the queerness of the vampire is that they're affected. That, that even if we're dealing with the vampire next door, that, um, who was that in, in Fright Night? It was um, Michael... Was it Frank Ligella? No, no, was no. It?
4: no.
7: <laughs> Sorry? Oh, oh. Sarandon, Sarandon, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but there's that, that really affected aristocratic yeah. kind of aspect to them, and I think that you get that in, in Buffy and you yeah. get that... That, that, they, that there's this... I mean, it's not just camp, but it's a kind of aristocratic camp.
4: Mm. I
1: think I read somewhere that also wasn't Stoker writing at the same time that Oscar Wilde was on
7: trial. Yeah. So it
1: does become this kind of, like, you know, camp, kind of this critique of the aristocracy mm. as well, like of projecting this on kind of onto the bad figure. Yep. Um, I had a question. I was discussing this with, this with a friend the other day. I can't think of very many ex- um, examples in film, TV or what have you of where you can reverse vampirism? Like, once you're kind of like, you know, a vampire, you're a vampire. Near dark. Near dark. A transfusion. One. Was there another? Blade. blade? You can reverse it? That
2: had, like,
1: that's yeah. right. Is that all to do with blood transfusions? I can't remember. Oh, there's, oh yeah, no, that's right. He shoots yeah. into his arm.
2: Yeah. yeah, to stop him from wanting the blood.
4: Mm. Yeah, that, uh, that was
2: And killing the master yeah, is yeah. another then, another invention. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Fright Night does Fright that actually. And
1: Fright Night does the transfusion stuff
2: as well. No, Fright Night does the killing the master too. Oh, okay. Next mm. I've oh.
0: got time
5: for three more questions. We'll put the mic here. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, just me anyway. I was considered like the, the werewolf itself to be more of the blue collar monster as opposed to yeah. you know the <laughs> vampire tough like a yeah, yeah. haunting and uh, American werewolf and London that sort of thing. Um, anyway, uh, what I was going to say was uh, how towards the end of, say, uh, vampires becoming fatty and popular, like with uh, the Hammer Horrors, for example, when they were dying out, they got very experimental, as in uh, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, and uh, was it the Five Brothers versus the Vampires, the Shaw Brothers movies? Uh, probably uh, Captain Cronus has more or less set the sort of staple as to where vampires now have gone. To uh, you know, the kung fu, half vampire, half human fighting. Where do you folks see uh, us heading now on this latest kind of peak in vampirism, as it were? Well,
7: my take to start with, I, I guess um, one of the things that's really interesting at looking at um, kind of non-American traditions of vampires is mm. that vampires never died out. They've always been fatty. Mm. They've always been there. There's almost always been a glut, mm. um, which is interesting if you think about the whole idea of the vampire of being infected mm. and spreading and what if they take over. It's, it's exactly that. Quite like zombies. like yeah, yeah, and your comparison of like fandom to vampirism and stuff I actually think it fits quite nicely. So it's almost, um, it might kind of culturally occur in waves. Mm. So we get that crazy kind of 60s stuff in Mexico but that doesn't mean that there weren't Things, other things happening at other times in Mexico. They were just that was just like the kind of big explosion. Um, I think also so much.
6: Yeah. It certainly hit that point in popularity where everyone's waiting for the next thing now. Mm. Anne Rice has just come out and said the next big thing won't be vampires; it will be angels. Aww. Aww. But um, I'm not sure if we buy that. I think the werewolf's got a good shot. I'd like to, yeah. I'd something like to see something weirder, some like the Chupacabra, the Mexican goat oh, sucker, perhaps. <laughs> but I don't think we're going to get romance novels featuring them oh. anytime soon.
2: I think the, the thing is that um, genre, these genres have to revive themselves and inject new conventions so that um, they can be successful because do, audiences do become overexposed to the conventions and then you just get bored with the same, same mm. thing being regurgitated. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, just in terms of the zombie, how long that's going to last in terms of popularity too because mm. I think we start to see a bit of a petering out. Maybe not in the computer games. The computer games are still pretty popular mm. um, terms of the zombie Mm -hmm. Mm storyline?
1: I'm fascinated to know, after all of your reading and viewing, if you feel that the audiences for vampire, zombie and superheroes has changed over time, because one of the things that I feel happens at the moment is that vampire stories are very much pitched towards women Mm -hmm. and zombie stories are pitched towards guys, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's always been the case, so Mm -hmm. what's your opinion. Mm -hmm.
7: Mm -hmm. Can we do a quick show of hands? Um, ladies in the room, like who likes zombies? Who likes werewolves? Chupacabra.
6: Um, <laughs> <laughs> who likes who likes
7: like slasher, stalker stuff? Um, who likes mummies? Ooh.
4: The mummy.
2: That's that's going to be the next comeback. Oh, the
7: devastated. Mummy. Who likes vampires? I guess it's a vampire panel, so we're going to yeah. get that. I
6: don't know. That wasn't um, as or, or inspiring but, as I thought. It see, might I,
7: be. I, I have to. I'm, I think that it's a marketing thing. To be honest, yeah. I, I just know. Like, I watch a lot of horror. Mm. I talk to a lot of people who watch a lot of horror, and I feel that there's a marketing strategy behind the kind of the the girls like vampire stuff. Yeah, the and t- I'm and not do that, that they way, don't. They don't yeah. like the '70s kind of slasher, mm-hmm.
1: Jason kind of things. And
7: I, like that. I, my personal experience just doesn't back that up. I mean, mm. I'm not saying that I see. Um, you know, for every kind of girl that I see on a bus reading Twilight, I don't expect to see people on a bus with their iPod uh, watching Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's happening, but I wonder. I actually wonder where the pleasures are that cut off. I mean, I, I know that from my own experience.
2: No, I just like all of it. Well, um, there's actually a survey on the slasher tradition and um, Vera Dika's book, yeah. the yeah, slasher yeah. film, uh, and mm-hmm. she contested the whole myth that it's mainly guys who watch these these films um, and i can't remember how she did the the stats she got them from the studio and apparently it was more than 50% were women yeah so that was a myth that was exploded
1: well i mean horror originally as a literary genre was female like the gothic even stuff, Austin's yeah. kind of like north ranger abbey it was discussed as a women's mm. genre you know it, it was kind of poo pooed like only women write that kind of gothic horror we kind went, of
4: a small production that was um, a horror burlesque night which was called gore and it was sort of based on combining this you know seduction that you find in vampire films Um, towards women with the the awfulness of gore and fake blood and prosthetics and it was really successful and we had like great reviews so like it's alive and well.
7: Yeah I really don't know whether whether those boundaries of of kind of spectatorial pleasure are that that cut off. I write on snuff film and rape film. I'm happy about that. (laughs) My, My parents not so much but you know whatever. But I think
2: that's part of the, the um, joy, I guess, of horror. It, it does have that kind of carnivaless kind of celebratory thing. And it is about, um, I guess, embracing your mortality and just making fun of it and turning everything on its head. And whether you like doing that through vampires or werewolves or chupachabras, chupacabras. <laughs> chupa or dwarves, or um, what do they call them? Leprechauns? Leprechauns. Dwarves, I was going to say. Dwarf. No, leprechauns.
0: Thank you so much to Sage and Alex and Angela and Martin for a bloody hilarious <laughs> and Aww. insightful and entertaining You will also see on your seats I've left some ultra jaggy feedback forms I will be so overjoyed if you could fill them out Uh, overjoyed in their entirety Um, pretty happy if you fill them out a little bit so what we really want to know it's a new program and we're trying to um, develop it in a way that makes you come back so write down your favourite TV shows what sort of things you would like to see and we would love to see you back next time thank you